Well, praise the Lord. Thank you, ladies, for that song. And thank God for the truth in that song that there's nobody, nobody that is too lost to be saved. And so many examples of that in the pages of the Word of God. So many examples of that sitting around this auditorium this morning, folks that others were convinced would never change, who would never get it together, are sitting among you today, and though you think, wow, they've got it all together, listen, the story of a lot of us is that we didn't have anything together, and if it wasn't for God, our life would still be a mess, but God's grace. Amen. Thank you again, ladies, for the message of that song. As you can see, it's beginning to look a lot like Liberty. You've never been to Liberty. I, listen, I want to encourage you, um, either on the, the 28th or the 29th, 30th, or the 1st, I encourage you to come. It starts at 7 o'clock. I would get here early. Doors open at 6, and this place will fill up fast. Um, choir's been working hard. Cast has been working hard. Hundreds, literally hundreds of man hours since February um, have gone into uh, this production, and so if you've never been to Liberty, um, I'd encourage you to come. If you've been, you can give testimony. It's worth the time. It's free, and we hope that you'll come. Again, uh, it's a, an original uh, script written by uh, our uh, uh, minister of music and associate pastor, Tyler Prater, and um, buddy of his. Both of them graduated from Fellowship Baptist School, and I've uh, just kept a, a lifetime friendship, and Aaron lives here in town, and, and uh, what, is this the fourth one, fifth, fifth year that they have written the original uh, script for the drama part of it, and uh, having been music director for nearly 20 years right here in this same church, um, and seeing many, many musicals written, I can honestly say this, that there's just not anything out there really that's written in a dramatic form for uh, patriotic uh, celebrations, and they have, uh, they have just absolutely killed it every year and looking forward to happening again this year. If you have your Bible, go with me to John chapter 16. For those that may just be joining us, we have been in a study for some time now um, in the Gospel of John, and we title it the starting point because for anyone who is seeking truth, anyone who is looking for explanations of who Jesus was and who he is and why he came and what he did, it's all right here in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, John said at the end, here's the reason that I wrote these things. I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in believing, receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. So if you or someone you know, they're seeking truth, they're looking for something that's missing in your life, send them to the Gospel of John. And uh, it'll be a very helpful uh, book for them. And as we come to our study today, uh, Jesus had just spent... Uh, spoken some very, very troubling words to his disciples concerning the world's treatment of them in the future. 
without mincing any words, he told them straight up that you are going to be hated because of your allegiance to me. And then he added, but don't be surprised because they hated me too. That was in chapter 15. As we come to chapter 16, the news does not get any better for the disciples as Jesus continues in verse 1, These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended or should not stumble and fall away from the faith. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. That's a good way to brighten somebody's day. And these things will they do unto you, verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now look across the page or wherever verse 21 of chapter 15 is in your Bible. And Jesus said this, if I had not come, or excuse me, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Jesus said the reason that haters hate is because they don't know God. They've not been saved. They don't get you. They don't get your faith. They don't get your commitment. Uh, they don't get your service. They don't get your attendance. Uh, they don't get why you're different. They don't get that at all. And in many cases, you are uh, sometimes Christians are hated and despised and evil spoken of because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and their commitment to God and his word and, and other people just don't get it. And, and let me just say now what I said a couple of weeks ago, don't be angry at them. Don't be mad at them. Love them. Pray for them. Pray that they would come to know Jesus like you've come to know Jesus. Pray that they can experience His transforming grace in their lives in the very same way that you've experienced in your life. Verse 4, But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient, it's better for you, it's more profitable for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, circle that word in your Bible, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Comforter is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there is parakletos. It, it speaks of one who comes alongside another to console them. Somebody who, who, who steps up and encourages them and edifies them and tries to build them up and bring comfort to their hearts in, in difficult times. And listen, if, if I had just been told that people were going to kill me and feel good about it, I would want a comforter. 
I would want somebody to come alongside me and minister to me and say, hey, it's going to be okay. And I praise the Lord this morning for the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. But he is not just about comfort. And that's a whole other message in itself. And the Lord lets us know that, and, and he lets his disciples know, and he lets us know that he's not just about comfort. In verses 8 through 11, which will serve as our text, Jesus speaks of another of the Spirit's ministries, and it's the ministry of reproof or the ministry of correction or conviction. Look at it, verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. July the 8th, 1741, one of the greatest messages to ever be preached on American soil was preached at a church in Enfield, Connecticut. The preacher's name was Jonathan Edwards. The title of his message that morning was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35, using the phrase, their foot shall slide in due time. They say that as Edwards preached, he had to hold the manuscript so close to his face in order to read it that you couldn't see his face. During the course of his message, which was read strictly from the manuscript in a very monotone voice, the congregation that had gathered there was moved almost beyond control. If you read stories of that sermon, you'll, you'll read that one man sprang up from his pew and started running toward the, the front of the church, toward the pulpit, saying in a very loud voice, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. Some caught hold of the, the back of the pews and in front of them for fear of, of literally slipping into hell. While others clung to the pillars of the meeting house and cried aloud for mercy. Can you imagine a scene like that? Can you imagine such power of God that would be their response. What do you suppose could account for that kind of response to a message that was read from a manuscript in a monotone voice that was held so close to the preacher's face that you couldn't even see his face? What would account? He wasn't a guy up here running around and yelling and screaming and, and spitting and spewing and getting in people's face. It was a very subdued moment. What do you suppose would account for that kind of reaction? 
I'll tell you what it was. What the people of Enfield, Connecticut felt on July 8, 1741 was the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that it would be the Spirit's ministry to reprove. That's a legal word that means to bring to light. It means to expose or to refute. It means to convict or convince. You see, the Holy Spirit not only comforts us, but He also convicts us. We might say that He is the comforter who makes us uncomfortable. But uncomfortable about what? He makes us uncomfortable about our life as it relates to the three things mentioned in our text. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. First of all, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict us concerning a problem that we must admit. That problem has to do with sin, both by nature and by neglect. I'm not sure if you picked up on it or not, but notice that Jesus used the word sin, singular, and not sins, plural, in verse 8. Sin, singular, speaks of what we, uh, sins, plural, excuse me, speaks of what we do. Sin, singular, speaks of what we are. Sin, singular, speaks of how we are sinners by birth. Sins, plural, speaks of how we are sinners by behavior. Listen, a man is not a sinner because he sins. No, we sin because we are sinners. Sin is the root of the problem. Sins are the result of the problem. And honestly, the Holy Spirit deals with both aspects of sin, but He always starts with sin singular. So understand this this morning, that man is a sinner by nature. And to deny that, according to the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote three smaller epistles toward the end of your Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. According to him in 1st John chapter 1 and verse 8, to deny that biblical truth that at our very nature, at the very root of who we are, we are sinners, to deny that is to deceive ourselves. Look at what he said. If we say that we have no sin, again, plural our sin nature, he's talking about our natural tendency toward wrongdoing. If we deny that's who we are, and if we deny that that's part of, of our uh, makeup, here's what he said, then we're just deceiving ourselves. All we're doing is, is, is lying to ourselves. The truth is not in us. When the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, he, he, it is to make them realize that they're lost and that they are separated from God and that they are doomed to an eternity without Him. In addition to convicting of sin by nature, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin by neglect. Look at it in verse 9 again, of sin because they believe not on me. 
The simple reason men and women remain lost and separated from God and doomed to an eternity without Him is because they have not believed on Jesus Christ. That is, they have not repented of their sin and received Him as their personal Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit in His ministry of conviction drives this point home in the hearts of the lost every time they hear a gospel message, thus making them uncomfortable. I remember my first few visits to this very church over 40 years ago as a teenager. Sitting there, listening to the gospel message, and feeling what I now know was conviction. I didn't understand it all at that time like I do now. All I knew as I sat there and I listened to that preacher preach was that something was going on on the inside of me that was overwhelmingly compelling. It was that uneasy and I would say even guilty feeling on the inside when the pastor would talk about how Jesus died on the cross for my sin so that I could be saved. And how that without believing on him and being saved that I couldn't go to heaven. Listen, I was convicted because I knew in my heart that I had not done that. But as convicting as it was, and as uneasy as I felt, and as, un as uncomfortable as I was, as I sat in the pew listening to that, there was still something about that message that compelled me to come back, and to come back, and to come back. And finally, when I was 16, on a Wednesday night, I had wrestled with it as long as I was going to wrestle with it. And I went to my youth pastor after church, September 8, 1976. And that night I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you know what? When a preacher stands and preaches a message like I'm preaching this morning, there's no guilt. There's no uneasiness. Now, when the preacher starts preaching about the results of my sin... My practices, and then it gets convicting. But the Spirit always starts with our greatest need, which is Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And anyone who is not willing to admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior can never go to heaven. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, of sin, because we believe not on Jesus, and of righteousness and the provision, listen, the provision that we must accept. The Spirit not only brings us to the realization of our need of salvation, but He also reveals to us the truth about how we can be saved. I mean, we just learned that we're sinners. This is an undeniable fact that, that is recorded all throughout the pages of the Bible, we're sinners. And just as sinful as we are, God is not. 
God is holy. He is perfectly holy. He is infinitely holy. Holiness is his supreme characteristic. Everything about God and everything around God is holy. And the fact that God is holy poses a serious problem for those who aren't. It means that unless something changes, they'll never see God. That's what Paul told the Hebrews. He said, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, it's at this point where lost people begin to reason in their minds, well, if it takes holiness to be saved, if it takes holiness to go to heaven, it takes holiness to see God, then I better get busy doing some holy things. And so they, they may start reading their Bible. Maybe they don't have a Bible. They borrow one. They go buy one. And they start reading the Bible. They may start praying. They may actually start attending a, a church somewhere. They may even get baptized. I mean, that's a holy thing. And if they're really feeling it, they may even give money or volunteer to, to help with things that might need to be done. And listen to me this morning. All the while, they are in their minds, what they are doing is that they are earning some holiness brownie points with God. In their minds, here's what they're doing, because they see this, this great, huge scale, set of scales in heaven, and, and as they see it, wow, right now it's tipped against them and so they're they're going to try to they're going to try to do better and be better and they're going to try to 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 be right with God and, and to be holy and and in their minds here's what they're doing they're trying oh they're trying their best to to tip the scales in their favor and just hoping as they go through life that one day when they stand in judgment that the curtain will be pulled back and the scales will be tipped in their favor now they wouldn't be as It's dramatic about explaining that to you. But in their minds, that's what's happening. I've dealt with people for nearly 40 years now in the ministry and, and have talked to many people who that's their idea of getting to heaven. I've just got to be better. I've got to do better. I've got to tip the scales in my favor. Man, I better start going to church. I better start reading my Bible. I better start praying. I better give a little money to the Lord. And, and, and the problem with all of this, this holiness stuff is that it falls short of what God requires. Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the, the glory of God. That means they've missed the mark that God has set. And here's the point that Paul is making in that verse. A person can, can do a lot of good things, things that may even be deemed holy, but even at their best. They still miss the mark. Well, here's a pretty telling statement made by the psalmist in Psalm 39 and verse 5. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. Vanity meaning unsatisfactory. Wow. So what is a man to do? When even at his best, 
after working so hard and being so good and, and doing all of these things, even if I do that and at the end of the day it's not good enough, what is a man to do? I'll tell you what he's to do. He is to submit himself to God's righteousness. In Romans 10, 3, Paul wrote concerning many of his, his fellow Jews. And he, for many years of his life, he was living where they were at. And now things have changed for him. He's met the Lord. He's been converted. His life has been transformed. And now he has a burden for his fellow Jews. And here's what he says about them. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, that's what I just talked about, going to church, reading their Bible, being baptized, taking the Lord's Supper, all of these things, trying to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. These former Jewish colleagues of the Apostle Paul were like the people, again, that I just described. You're going around trying to earn all of these holiness points with God. But neither the Jews of Paul's day or many sinners of our day understand that righteousness that is required is a righteousness that is received. Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's talking about Adam all the way back in the book of Genesis. So by the obedience of one, that's Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Note, note the phrase there, the last two words, made righteous. That means it's not something that we have done on our own. It is something that is done for us by somebody else. I can't make myself righteous. I can't earn righteousness. That's a gift that comes from God. Paul said so in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him, that's, that's God, has made Jesus to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? Again, that's Jesus, that we look at it, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Note again, be made righteousness. The righteousness that is required to see God one day is a righteousness that must be received from the hands of God today. We do not become righteous by means of our own merit. We are made righteous by the grace of God. Let me show you Romans 5, 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Righteousness is a gift that is offered by God and received by the lost. It's not earned, it's accepted. That makes sense. Romans 
even the righteousness of God, which is by good works. Is that what it says? Even the righteousness of God, which is by good deeds. Even the righteousness of God, which is by baptism. Even the righteousness of God, which is by what, church? By faith of Jesus Christ. Look at this. Unto all and upon all them that believe. The righteousness of God is unto all. That is, it is available to everyone. So here's the good news this morning. Anyone can be saved. No one is too lost to be saved. Anyone can be made righteous by God. But only those who are saved are those who believe. Look at it. It's unto all, but it's only upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are right now in in your journey of faith, whether you have one or whether you don't have one. It doesn't matter what you believe about God or the Bible or the church. It doesn't matter if you don't believe at all. It doesn't matter if you are the the worst person in this room or if you are the, the most respectable person in this room. If you have not been given the grace of God, if you've not received God's righteousness by grace through faith, you're not saved. Look back quickly at verse 9 of our text. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Again, the words of the Bible are not in there by mistake. It's not an accident. And Jesus did not say that this belief was in him. He said this belief is on him. There are many, I'm I'm guessing many in this room, most in this room today, if asked, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, really, seriously, honestly, believe in Jesus? They say, absolutely. I have no doubt about his existence. I believe the historical accounts of, of Jesus. I've not only read it in the Bible, I've read it in other places. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that Jesus was real. But listen to me this morning, believing in him is not the same as believing on him. I believe in this chair. I can touch it. I can see it. I can feel it. I can examine it. I I believe in this chair. But just believing in it is not the same as believing on it. What do I have to do to, to believe on it? I got to commit myself to it. 
I've got to say, I, I just don't believe out here that, that this chair can do it. I've actually got to sit down in it. And that's what Jesus is saying. The, the only way to be saved is not by just believing in me. You must believe on me. You must commit your heart and your life to me as your Lord and Savior. And I will make you right. I will make you righteous. That's the message that the Holy Spirit wants to get across to every lost person here this morning. That believing in Jesus is not the same as believing on Him. To believe on Him is to abandon all hope of any other way to heaven. And to commit your life to Him. So if you've ever wondered why you feel uncomfortable when you come to church, it could be because the Holy Spirit is convicting you about a problem that you must admit and about a provision that you must accept. But Jesus said there would be one more aspect of the Spirit's ministry, and it would involve the peril we must avoid. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and see them no more. Verse 11, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Those of us who are saved today, We've been on the convicting end of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Amen? We've been there. We've done that. And we know all too well how convincing he can be to a sinner of his or her lost condition and their inability to save themselves. I cannot convict you but the holy spirit can take the words of the bible and the words of the pastor and use them to bring about conviction and, and i've been there and many of you have been there but i think you would agree with me this morning that the most dreadful thing of all is when the holy spirit opens our eyes to the reality that without christ we have nothing to look forward to but being judged and turned into hell. It's that fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation that Paul talked about in the book of Hebrews. So let's spend the last few minutes together talking about this, talking about the future of rejecting Christ says here in verse 11, because the prince of this world is judged. Now what in the world does the judgment of Satan have to do with you and me? Notice that Jesus didn't say that Satan would be judged. He has already been judged. Not only has he been judged, but we know from, from our learning and our reading and our study of the book of Revelation that he has already been sentenced. He has been sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
And the only thing that awaits is the execution of the sentence. And that will happen during a series of events uh, uh, in the end times that we will not get into this morning. We learn from Paul's letter to the Ephesians that Satan is the Lord of all of those who are yet in their sin. That Satan is the Lord of those who have not yet come to Christ for salvation. And by virtue of their being in relation to Satan, they will be judged with him and will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Listen to these fearful words in the book of Revelation. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is the future awaiting all who refuse to call upon the name of the Lord. preparation for the message today i read a story of a king who sent for his court jester and when he got there he gave them this beautifully crafted cane and said i want you to hang on to this until you find a bigger fool than you years passed one day the king called for the jester he's up in years now and the king is on his deathbed. And as the jester arrives, he says, I'm going away. The jester inquired as to when he would return. And the king replied, I shall never return. For I am going to a country far, far away. The jester understood at that point that the king was talking about dying. And so he asked him if he had made preparations for the journey. The king said, no, no, I've made no preparation. At that point, the jester handed the king the same beautifully crafted cane that he had been given years and years earlier. And he then said to the king, I have kept this cane many years, intending to give it to a bigger fool than myself 
but I never found one until today. Knowing that eternity awaits every one of us. Let's be honest this morning. It awaits every one of us. And knowing that it will be an eternity of torment day and night forever and ever for all of those who reject Jesus Christ. What folly it is not to be saved. What about you this morning? Where will you spend eternity? I mean, if, if eternity were to begin right now, this moment, where would you be? There are only one or two options. It's either heaven or hell. And both are forever. Those who go to heaven, they don't want to escape. And those who go to hell, they're not able to escape. It's forever and ever. I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning in prayer. Would you?